Hello, and welcome to Spadework, a podcast where organizers from all kinds of places and struggles talk about the hard lessons learned through their political work, what organizing means for them, what keeps on going wrong, what great victories they had, and what made them. I'm Daniel Gutierrez, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Antje Dieterich. With us here today is our dear and beloved Rodrigo Nunes. Rodrigo teaches modern and contemporary philosophy at the Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro. And while that might sound a bit haughty, Rodrigo draws from two decades of political experience spanning back to the alter globalization and global justice movement. He's worked as a community organizer and popular educator in Brazil, was part of Turbulence Collective, one of the best underground bands in the long 90s, He worked on the Justice for Cleaners campaign in London, and his political activities have had him crisscrossing between the Americas and Europe over the last couple of decades. We invited Rodrigo with us here today because his book, Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, A Theory of Political Organization, has finally been released by Verso Books and is now available to buy. Now, to our listeners, there might be a bit of a shock that we've invited someone over to come talk about ideas about organizing, because usually we talk to organizers about the nitty-gritty of organizing. However, ideas are just as important to organization, because organization is mediated through ideas, concepts, and discourses about organization. That is, the ways we think and talk about organization frames our actions and conditions organizational practices. Sometimes these ideas are conducive to greater degrees of organization. Other times, they're inhibitive. This is an important terrain of struggle to Antje and I precisely because we have an existential organizational task. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, we have until 2030, just nine years, to diminish emissions by 45% according to 2010 levels and reach net zero by 2050 in order to avert utter ecological catastrophe. In other words, we have just a little bit of time to generate enough political capacity to save the world from this doomsday clock. In episode 2, we talked to Kim Solievna of Ende Gelände and Katharina Stiel, union organizer and members of Friday for Future, to talk about the tension between spade work, Ella Baker's conceptualization of political organizing as long and difficult preparatory agricultural labor of digging, seeding, irrigating, and mending that makes a political harvest possible, and the ticking of the clock. To this end, we feel that Rodrigo's book provides us with political ammunition that functions to make us more capable of meeting the task. Drawn from the long tradition of the anti-capitalist left and from an array of thinkers from Lenin to Derrida, his work summons history, particularly that of the last 10 years, to exercise our theories of organization in order to provide a brilliantly fresh, rigorous, and open toolbox to get to work. This accounting of people's genuine attempts to change the world for the better and the tragic evaluation provided is refreshingly considerate and careful and breaks from a tradition of stinging critique that tends to dominate strands of left thought. Despite this care, the work is nonetheless sobering and as we know, sobriety is as painful as it is clarifying. So, Rodrigo, 
Thank you for coming here today. Thank you. Your work uses climate change to frame the problem of organization in the ways that we just laid out a minute ago. As we said, the problem is that we have to achieve a certain political effect, which is a tremendous reduction of CO2 emissions, in a certain amount of time, about eight to nine years. Um, but as we've gone over time and again, organizing takes time. Do we have time to organize or should we thinking more in terms of spontaneity? Well, I think we could invert the question and ask, do we have the luxury of thinking in terms of spontaneity? Because the problem with thinking in terms of uh, spontaneity is that, yeah, sure, maybe we don't have the time uh, that would be required to do the amount of organizing Uh, that we need to do. But on the other hand, what does it mean? What would it mean to trust spontaneity to do the job for us? Because obviously, in order to trust spontaneity to do the job for us, uh, we would we would have to be sure that it not not only can do that job, but that it will And that it will do it in the amount of time that we have by the end of the uh, decade. And that it will do it to the extent that we need. And I think this is, um, this is the, the, the way in which the problem of spontaneity needs to be posed. That's, I dedicate an entire chapter uh, in the book to discussing this idea of uh, spontaneity. And I think it's a very good example of um, how much our thinking around organization is um, held back by several concepts that have uh, acquired lots of uh, associations over the years and developed, and these associations have developed in, into sorts of um, cliches and ready-made thoughts that have uh, over time, which often come from perfectly um, legitimate preoccupations, um, but have come to be, uh, have come to function as uh, blockages on our thought and our capacity to, to pose these problems. Um, so, for example, if we say when what happens uh, when we oppose um, spontaneity to to organization is we're effectively supposing that spontaneous things are not organized and organized things are not spontaneous. It, the the problem with that sort of thinking becomes even more um, explicit when we oppose self-organization to organization because then um, you're opposing the qualifier of a concept self to the concept itself as if self-organization were the contrary of uh, organization which is a way of and and this is obviously connected to um, the 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 critique of um, organization from the point of view of spontaneity, that we shouldn't organize, we should trust the spontaneous capacity of people to, to come together and do what, what they need to do. Um, what we're doing in that case is effectively we're saying um, 
we're saying organization is always if if we oppose spontaneity or self-organization to organization we're saying organization is always organization imposed by an other imposed from the outside imposed from someone who should not be doing that obviously then the possibility of distinguishing organization uh what what would be organized i.e. hetero organized organized by another organized from the outside the possibility of distinguishing that from what is self organized or what is uh spontaneous would hinge on the possibility of drawing a boundary separating what's inside uh so you know what a circumscribed collection of people spontaneously think and spontaneously want and what would be the outside the outsiders the external influence that would come uh from without this group and bring other ways of thinking and acting usually when we draw or always i would say when that boundary it's drawn it's actually coming with a value judgment and the value judgment is whatever comes from the inside is spontaneously is good whatever comes from the outside and is organized is bad so there's there's a huge i think um all of us that have grown up in in the wake of um the critique of actually existing socialism have grown up within a political cu- culture that was heavily infused with this idea that to organize is bad because to organize is to come from the outside and to uh impose something the problem is the boundary between inside and outside is never that clear so actually it's always the value judgment that comes first it's not people aren't really talking about inside and outside they are first making the value judgment and then distinguishing between an inside and an outside i mean i think there is actually right now a is a bit of a turnaround in that a lot of people now criticize those who organize towards spontaneous events which sounds a bit contradictory but the most common uh, example is always the summits here like the G8 or G20 when when you have these like dates that represent capitalism to some degree and it's uh, all it's it's evil and negative sides so that you the those kind of of events are considered as the more spontaneous outbursts of the anger of the people and then there is organizing of those who go door knocking who uh, talk to their neighbors who identify the issues through dialogue and carefully develop uh, strategies how to include everyone and i think the way i see it currently is that actually all those and i i wouldn't exclude myself completely from that side but that um there is an almost a hatred for those who then come to the summits and then they mess everything up and then we have to reconnect with the neighbors all over again because they now think again that all these lefties just burn my car or whatever like their their imagination is uh, and so i used to be stronger on that side of really opposing these mass mobilizations but with the eye on on climate change and now seeing for example these fridays for future campaigns but also endegelende I do clearly see a necessity to stop seeing them as uh um, opposed as opposed 
or even as that separatable, as you said? The first thing, obviously, is, and this is one of the things that I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do with the book. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say this grammar that opposes spontaneity to uh, organization or self-organization to organization, which would mean that organization is always hetero-organization, is always organization from the outside and therefore um, immediately assumed to be bad. Um, this way of, of thinking is actually very uh, damaging. It's not only damaging, but it's also false because uh, those things that people tend to describe as spontaneous are themselves organized. So organizing a summit where people are going to come together and do their own thing is still organizing to the extent that you're deciding the date, you're deciding the object, you're deciding the framing. Um, Through the framing, you're kind of deciding what kinds of people you're going to attract and what kinds of uh, political action you're going to attract to that. But there's still a very strong um, idea that the only way that is only acceptable if you if it's um, under the guise of, well, We bring everyone together and everyone does their own thing. So this is how people who uh, believe in this grammar that opposes spontaneity to organization justify themselves, the fact that they're organizing uh, things. Well, we organize things, but then people uh, do their own thing, which is a very funny, um, which is a very funny idea because um, it's, um, it always makes me think, um, You know, obviously, you have an analysis of the situation. You have an analysis of the world, of the the state of global capitalism, of uh, climate change, and what needs to be done about it. But then somehow you, at the same, and you believe this analysis is true because obviously, to have an analysis is to believe it is true. But somehow you believe that it would be wrong to try and bring other people over to your analysis. There is something dirty about doing that. Where does that come from? It comes precisely from this uh, grammar of, that opposes organization to spontaneity and makes organization something that's supposedly always forced on, on other people. The, the, this dirty feeling is also something that I've seen in multiple occasions, like... Um... I was in an extra-parliamentary left organization from 2015 to 2019 here in Berlin. And then um, one time at the university, I was talking to a comrade there who was like part of some anarchist collective or something like that. And then he was saying in reference to my organization at that time, like, oh, yeah, like you guys are like these conspiracy people. Like I see you everywhere and I have the feeling that you guys are pulling strings behind people's backs or something like that which was a crazy imagination because i was like i wish <laughs> I, i wish we had that kind of organizational capacity of coordination <laughs> but really we don't <laughs> and on the other hand it was crazy that there was this sinister connotation to coordination that coordination can only be sinister and conniving 
and mysterious mm. and then manipulative manipulative yeah. and then likewise that also yeah. came up recently in the in the housing thing um, I'm part of the the Deutsche von Enteignen campaign here, the campaign to expropriate big uh, landlords. But when the organization conversation came up, someone had also expressed like, oh yeah, um, this sounds all good to organize others, but am I being organized by you all? Because I've also had this experience in the past that, you know, like someone manipulated me And um, I like my voice was instrumentalized in another political process. And so, um, like, you know, these fears come from like legitimate places. <laughs> But uh, it's also that then that creates this negative backlash on any kind of attempt at initiative to begin with. I wonder how much that actually does. This is why I said that with the title connect to the horizontal versus vertical, because I feel the fear of of being organized has to do with the question of how much do I then still have control over what is going to happen? How much is like, is there a leadership that takes my voice or dictates what I do? And I'm just in it, like chained to <laughs> my comrades and will never speak out again. Or is there like, I think there is this impression that being organized means almost Like in the workplace, there is a boss, and then there's management, and then there's me. <laughs> yeah, and obviously these these kinds of associations um, they're not they're not arbitrary. They're not simply uh, paranoid, or they're not purely paranoid. They they come from experience. <laughs> they come from experience. They comes they come from history. They you know people people can see that's. It, that is perhaps the 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 worst thing that the the left um, has had to deal with in the second since the second half of the of the twentieth century, which is the experience um, that even even where it had its greatest victories, those victories were actually defeats in the sense that what what you created in the end were uh, states in which people didn't have a say, in which people uh, didn't really, couldn't really participate, couldn't really um, uh, decide over their own lives, etc., etc. And then lots of bureaucratic uh, structures all over the world that reproduce precisely that pattern of behavior. Precisely what I wanted to do was to um, point out that actually once you suspend belief in that conceptual grammar that opposes self-organization to organization or spontaneity to organization, you realize that it makes no sense to associate this fear with organization per se. Why? Because even what, how, how does a spontaneous, uh, how does a wildcat strike happen? It's not just everyone getting the Look same idea. <laughs> Stayed at home, same day at for same some reason. <laughs> it's not even a memo. It's not even a memo because it's not coming from anywhere. It's just like, you know, everyone's, everyone's configurations are updated at the same time. People just... Everyone along the, the assembly line just just goes strike. No, it's you know 
Some people have the idea. They invite other people they trust. They invite other people they trust. People convince one another. People act on one another. People organize one another. What's the difference in that situation? Is that you have a, a situation of reciprocity. No one has the power to force anyone else do, to do anything. So the problem is not organization per se. The problem is uh, sustaining reciprocity over time. And lots of, um, lots of different political traditions, perhaps particularly the, uh, the anarchist tradition, have come up with mechanisms like the rotation of functions, um, the um, leaders and representatives being subject to recall at any time that try and precisely deal with uh, that issue of reciprocity and uh, keep lack of reciprocity or keeping the, the control of some people over others, which is perfectly natural because some people will be more experienced or they'll be more charismatic or they'll have more friends and the trust of more people within the group, etc., etc. But you have these different mechanisms to try and deal with that. So once you, once you understand that actually what is self-organized is... Um, organized by people acting on, on one another, you understand that the problem is not organization per se. The problem is how do you prevent organization from relapsing into forms of organization that lack uh, reciprocity? And this means that the opposition on which the, the both uh, oppositions on that this question supposed i.e. the opposition between the conceptual opposition between spontaneity and organization, but also the political opposition between the people who organized but organized only spontaneous uh, demonstrations, organized only these platforms for people to express themselves, and um, which supposedly would be okay precisely because they would be reciprocal, because no one is telling the people coming to the demonstration what to do. The opposition between that and people organizing in a workplace or people organizing with a neighborhood uh, association, etc. whether it's people in the neighborhood or people who come from outside the neighborhood to, to work with uh, that neighborhood, that, different, that difference disappears. It's not a difference between spontaneity and organization. It's two kinds of uh, organization. One that's probably going to have a greater level of uh, reciprocity because it's more uh, open-ended. The other that's, which is probably uh, going to have, going to be capable of, um, of pushing forward demands and campaigns in a much more targeted way without that necessarily meaning that it lacks reciprocity, without that necessarily meaning that it's undemocratic, that it's uh, top-down, that is imposed from outside, etc., etc. I also do f 
like have this because Daniel just uh, noted also on the side the assembly term that this idea of uh, a group comes together and everyone expresses that obviously develops its very own hierarchies, right? It's not necessarily actually liberating for everyone, but you see quite often like the the white middle class dude with a university education to be so much more visible and outspoken. I feel that um, not only does this, is it often a problem, like is it not often is the organizational problem spoken of, of creating like the right form in which, oh, if we just build this thing, people will then come together and do what they will do that will lead in solving the climate problem. People <laughs> <laughs> um, But uh, that also is often buttressed or connected to this, well, we just need the right people. Like if we collect the right class or identity, then that will automatically produce this fucking change, right? And so like, like you see that in terms of, um, like saying the discussions around class or identity precisely, right? It's like, oh, um, you know, like if we just actually talk to the working class, like if we just said what they were saying, they would follow us. <laughs> or if um, we actually um, just, um, you know, if we got the right combination of people with uh, overlapping, with the right overlapping oppressions, then they would know how to solve this problem. And so I feel that the, the question of um, this right form is often connected to the question of right political subject that is often both conceptualized in like ready-made forms. Like all you have to do is create the stadium and get the right people and then they'll play ball and it'll end in the field of dreams. It's, you know? it's the field of dreams approach to politics. Yes, just build it and they'll come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, spontaneity is very much uh, this, this idea of uh, spontaneity. If you think spontaneity... Um, so I don't, I don't propose that we abandon the uh, vocabulary of spontaneity uh, entirely, but what I, what I propose is that we re rethink spontaneity not as the absence of organization, but as the emergence of organization. Spont spontaneity is uh, the emergence of patterns of organization and these patterns of organization they be, they may be very fleeting and last only for a, an afternoon or they may last for several months in entirely informal ways or they may become progressively um, formalized and um, uh, even develop uh, formal they Or they may uh, turn into habit over time and become something that people do uh, out of habit and uh, through repetition. Or they may become formalized over time even and develop into like formal structures and procedures, etc., uh, etc. Et But the the idea, this idea, the idea of um, spontaneity, which I criticize, is very much this idea of um, uh, this field of dreams idea of politics that if you just build it, uh, they will come. And often this comes 
precisely with uh, the idea that the people, whoever the people are, so, you know, the common people or um, the working class, etc., they already know what they want. Um, they they uh, are ready um, and they will always somehow be be ready or you know it's just lying there under the the surface their readiness to act in exactly the way that you imagine uh, they should act now it's one of the things that I point out in the book is that I I don't think this is any less paternalistic than the idea that um, you know what the people should think because you're saying you're basically saying I know what the people think and if you just give people uh, the opportunity they will think the right thing which just happens to coincide with my own theory <laughs> of evolution uh, with my own theory of change but you know I'm sure that's I'm sure that's purely uh, a coincidence and precisely one of one of the things uh, that I think we need to we are forced to to give up when we give up this conceptual grammar that opposes uh, organization and um spontaneity is this idea that there is somewhere an essence of the people or of the working class that is naturally radical, that naturally believes in certain things, that is naturally inclined towards um, what just happens to be exactly our way of thinking, which is not at all to say the opposite, which is not at all to say that they are disinclined that they you know are uh you know lenin's infamous uh statement in what is to be done that you know left to their own devices they will develop uh in the direction of bourgeois trade unionism uh etc etc um it's not to say that it's to say simply there are no essences And it's precisely because there is no essence, because, precisely because there is no natural inclination of anyone towards this or that uh, political position, that organization is necessary. I, I, think, I think the examples that Antia uh, gave are great examples of uh, how actually people seem to be, to some extent, overcoming... Um, those divisions and over, overcoming the, the kind of um, uh, binary dead end that this um, conceptual grammar that I'm criticizing uh, ends up putting us in. And, and I think, like I say in, in the book, maybe that's, and I'm, I say in the book that I'm partially optimistic about the fact that I, I tend to think that nowadays more and more people are in practice discovering that those uh, binary oppositions aren't actually binary oppositions at all. And it's a matter of how you uh, combine those two things. And maybe that is related to climate change, because as I say uh, 
in the book, climate change helps focus the mind. You know, it, the, the fact that it poses uh, not only a problem of gigantic, gigantic proportions, a, a problem the magnitude of which uh, humankind had never posed itself um, before, but also the fact that this, um, this problem comes with a very tight deadline. You know, it's a, it's a question posed to us by a sphinx saying, look, you only have 10 years at best to try and solve this conundrum. In that sense, I would say that actually we, we live in a good time to be uh, posing these problems. If we're posing them as, uh, if we, we're posing this opposition that you proposed in your question, not as a binary opposition, not as an either or, but if we think those two things as um, complementary, because precisely one of the characteristics of the time that we're living in is, um, and this was perhaps the greatest discovery of the last 10 years, is that it is possible to have mass movements without mass organizations. Mass movements in which mass organizations play uh, a secondary or virtually non-existent uh, role. Which means that you can, uh, and why is that? Well, because of, mostly because of the um, technological affordances that are available to us and the degree to which uh, our lives all over the globe are interconnected uh, today via all sorts of different kinds of media. Now, that means precisely that you can think of ways in which to combine the, the two things, in which to combine these uh, so-called spontaneous moments of uh, explosion and the more, uh, the, the slower um, spade work of tilling the ground uh, for long-term transformations. Because precisely, you know, the, the technological affordances that we have today make it possible to create these large uh, explosions, which are a great moment in which to try and solve the conundrum that you raised, which is, well, there's, um, organizing is very time-consuming. You, you need a lot of people and you need uh, a lot of people who have available time to to do that work. Um, one of the ways in which you can try to solve that is through what you might call the primitive accumulation of activists that these uh, huge outbursts make possible. Those are moments in which suddenly you have lots of people coming into politics, uh, lots of people that are uh, eager to do something. And that's precisely the moment where you need to have the structures in place to try and bring some of these people into uh, organizing projects, into um, the, the, the slower, longer term work in which you always need 
more people to Absolutely. to help. That is definitely a point that organizers, I feel, quite often underestimate. Like, where do your people come from? You reach some of them because you knocked on their door, but these, like, waves of people have usually a different point of origin, I'd say. But this is also actually what you're seeing here in Germany with Fridays for Future, is that you have this sudden spontaneity that develops around Greta Thunberg. The sudden explosion of activity around uh, Fridays for Future that, you know, becomes this mimicry of Greta Thunberg and the process elsewhere suddenly develops this whole process here and develops exactly this kind of harvestable, primitive, primitive accumulation, you call, of activism. And you see the unions here actually harvesting that because they're developing articulations between um, between this kind of sudden burst of activity and saying, hey, um, we should organize for expanded and better public transportation in the cities. Um, and it's also being harvested by, say, Endegalenda and saying, like, hey, we should do these big direct actions at these coal mines and focus this collectivity here and there. Um, so you see this kind of uh, interplay that comes along this uh, process. It's it's very ecological, as you would say in your work. And perhaps mm -hmm. it makes sense at this point to to introduce this concept of uh, thinking organization ecologically and what you mean by that. Um, well, one of the things that it is about is um, precisely if thinking... Um, how to make the the resources of different organizations and um, different initiatives work in common like the basically the basic idea of uh, thinking organization as ecology is first of all the question of organization is not a prescriptive question posed at the level of individual organizations. So when we ask the question of organization, we're not asking the question, what organization should everyone belong to or what organizational form is the right organizational form for every organization? We, we're posing it, if we pose it ecologically, it means we pose it, um, we take as given that there's always a plurality of organizational forms. There's always a plurality of organizations. There's always a plurality of actors. There are loads of actors who don't belong to any organizations or individuals who don't belong to any uh, organizations but uh, somehow um, uh, somehow belong to, to what the uh, what they used to call in, in Italy in the 70s the area of the movement and the question then becomes you know how do you mobilize the area how do you um, make sure that the work that you're doing helps the work that these other organizations or these other campaigns are doing and conversely how can you take advantage how can you piggyback the work they're doing in in ways that are obviously not just um, exploitative as the left often tends to be with one another because ultimately we still tend to think not in ecological terms but uh, as if we were competing against one another precisely because in the background we still work with this idea that organizing is about organizing the right organization the organization that has the correct line and the organization that should win 
so every encounter between organizations or between campaigns is uh, in the background an encounter, a fight to decide, you know, who is, yeah, who's the vanguard of the struggle, who's got the correct line, who should win. So this is the other thing that uh, posing the the posing the question of organization ecologically means it means shifting our mode of thinking towards thinking you know not how do we compete against people who have a strategy that's not quite ours or have a different analysis uh to to ours or who are prioritizing other things but you know how how far can we go can we walk with them and how can we take advantage of the work they're already doing and uh for the work that we do and how we can find ways of supporting the work they do through our work and when when we need something done that we as an organization or as a campaign as a group uh a network etc don't have the capacity for where do we find the the resources in our network in our area in our uh political ecosystem that could help us do that thing that we we need so um in that sense it's it's not if there is um i say this a few times in the book if there is something uh prescriptive in the book is it's not um create an organizational ecology because what i'm saying is precisely an organization organizational ecology is what always exists it's what's always there and our difficulty um the, the the reason why we have a hard time seeing it is that our gaze was trained through centuries of uh political thinking to believe that deep down there should be one organization that should lead all or the others um but if there is something prescriptive in in the book is precisely this idea of think in ecological terms think as an ecology don't think you know um don't be sad because people who have a different analysis to yours seem to be winning but ask yourself well what can i do on top of what they're doing or what can i do that complements what they're doing and hopefully if i strongly disagree with the direction that they're going what can i do that corrects the course of what they're doing that doesn't annul what they're doing that doesn't uh cancel what they're doing but shifts what they're doing in a slightly different uh direction and that connects to the question of uh time that you raised uh earlier as well or to the question of uh the resources that we have available because it means that the resources that we have available um we we should try and find ways to make sure that the resources that we have available for the organizing work that we do are not simply in our organization or in our campaign but you know that we can count on a much broader uh ecology 
around us uh, for that. And at the same time, that we, on the other hand, that we, we must be very wise about how we use those resources, which is, which is another uh, argument against this idea that what we were calling the field of dreams uh, idea of politics, this completely open-ended belief in that, you know, if you just build a space for people to express their own truth, then a collective truth will finally emerge. Because often what happens in those moments of um, explosion is that people get drawn into processes that are incredibly time-consuming, incredibly grueling and tiring of trying to, you know, produce consensus about, you know, top 10 things that are wrong with the world in a room with 500 people. Yeah. And then obviously that doesn't work. And what happens is you've wasted lots of resources there because there are some people who were very eager to be doing <laughs> the work. not any longer. <laughs> They're not back. Yeah, no, that is back. a real problem. I mean, I make jokes about it, but uh, just because otherwise it's going to make me cry, you know. Um, I think y you talk about this term of ecological fitness, which I feel like or helped me wrap my head around it a little bit, also to understand that very similar organizations existing parallel might just be a backup, you know, how how nature creates kind of backups in case one insect mm. fails, there is a second one that can take over <laughs> like these these elements. And I also think it's very interesting to think about this ecology when people try to copy success that happened elsewhere. Like if we think about Barcelona and Comú, where in Europe different cities were like, oh, we should do that too. We should have a municipalist platform and then take over the city. And then if we have like all major cities taken over in Europe, problem solved, theoretically. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing with Sanders. There were these ideas uh, in Germany that we need a Sanders or a Corbyn figure that unites uh, all the unsatisfied Population. Workers, <laughs> people mm -hmm. um, behind this this figure. But if you think it more ecologically, I feel you can understand way better how you can't just copy. You can always look at, at mm -hmm. political success and say, hey, they, they did these things very well. What can we take out of this? Yeah, what elements are useful here? Yeah. And I think that term, like one is the... the competitive thought that really doesn't help because um, you have to understand that your enemy is those with the that own the fossil fuel and <laughs> the Deutsche Bank <laughs> and not, not that Trotsky's clique that you don't agree with. <laughs> yeah, so the, these, these um, more like think more about your area idea but the other thing for me is really the copying i felt in the last eight mm. or ten years there was a lot of oh let's have a movement of the squares in berlin or in oslo or let's have a, a sanders in Köln, or like, mm. and it always fails because it falls into a different kind of environment you can't just take out the yeah. the one thing that you saw 
and plant that tree here and hope that the soil is okay. <laughs> that kind of idea. Yeah, I mean, on on the one hand, you know, I think people are perfectly justified in trying that sort of thing. I I remember in 2012 there were um, there were some people who uh, camped in in a square in central central Rio, and it was a really small camp, and um, you know it became a bit sad in a very small amount of time because it was clearly not growing and it was clearly like you know there was clearly less and less of a point to it but people were still holding on to the idea that no we're going to start our own movement of the squares and everyone was like well that failed and you you should have seen occupied Tijuana (laughs) 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 um <laughs> or maybe I shouldn't. Um, but the thing, but the hope, the hope story in this is um, that a year later we had the 2013, the June 2013 protests in Brazil. So we had something like what people had been trying to produce in 2012, but. You know, for example, the square occupations in in Brazil played a completely marginal role in the protests. But so the thing is, you know, often the way to realize that these things just don't work is experimentally. Mm-hmm. You know, you often it will be the case that you will try to copy something and it just will work um and in this case we thought well you know nothing after 2012 after that very sad experience uh we thought well nothing like this can happen in brazil but we had something else that was similar but not you know not based on square occupations um etc that did happen i in 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 the book, I use a lot a slightly um, platonic language, uh, maybe of thinking of these as in terms of equations, thinkings, thinking of these experiments as equations. What you have to try and uh, work out is what's the equation for these things uh, that work in the places where they work. And then try to work out what the equivalent of that equation would be in uh, in the place where you are, rather than just if you if you just try to copy the variables, you know, say you're trying to you're trying to reproduce something like uh, Bernie Sanders in Köln, so you think, well, what we need is an old Jewish guy. Um, you know, that may very well be old Jewish guy. But the, reason, <laughs> but the reason why Sanders worked was not because he was an old Jewish guy. Um, you know, you you just in that case you're just copying the variable that made that equation that solved that equation or one of the variables that solved that equation somewhere else, rather than trying to work out what is the equation and trying to find what the variables that would solve that equation in this 
uh, circumstance would be. And this connects to, to the problem of uh, fitness precisely in, this, in the sense that I think this is another example of questions that have started to come back in the last 10 years, maybe because climate change helps focus the mind, maybe because many people who um, were drawn into politics by the, um, by the wave, that's the cycle of struggles that began in 2011, found, okay, what we tried to do there, the way we tried to do it hit a wall, and we need to find uh, other ways of thinking about this. But this what I describe uh, by this concept of fitness in the book, which is perhaps you could you could translate in very banal terms as precisely trying to work out what works in in a situation rather than just stating what the correct line is, but trying to work out what is the action, the the slogan, the action, the the um, the polit- political practices, the discourse, the um, social uh, connections, or the connection to to different uh, social bases in this concrete situation that take us the closest to what we believe the correct line is, mm-hmm. rather than just walking up to the world, announcing what the correct line is and expecting the world to say, oh yeah, no, I guess you're right. So, you know, we better do what, <laughs> what you're saying. Um, which is precisely, you know, this idea of trying to work out the, the equations, trying to work out at once the equations and the variables that would solve the equation in uh, concrete circumstances which I believe gives a completely different way, a completely different sense to, or a completely different meaning to uh, the word radical. A radical is precisely not someone who's radical intransitively, who's radical without a context, someone who simply states or uh, enacts a radical position. But a radical is someone who can push the situation the farthest from where it is and the closest to where it should be. And this supposes working out in that concrete situation, how do you do that? What do you connect to? Without, evidently, without, um, you know, that doesn't mean, um, oh, so we... Which is another thing that sadly, the, another uh, um, type of copying that the left sadly does a lot of, which is like, well, demonizing migrants works for the right. So why don't we try that too? Obviously, if you're doing that, you're not being radical, you're according not being to this definition. Yeah. <laughs> You're just being an asshole, actually. (laughs) You shouldn't shouldn't be allowed to describe yourself as the left. And also, you're not being radical in this this definition because precisely you're not taking the situation anywhere nearer 
to where it should be. On the contrary, you're just making things worse because now instead of there being just one party uh, or one side of the political spectrum demonizing migrants, you're saying, oh, well, why don't we do that too? Why don't we gang up on migrants as well? Um, so it obviously doesn't mean uh, giving up on your principles, but it means working out how do these principles ap apply in this concrete situation? How do we transform this concrete situation according to our principles in the way that takes us the closest to where to the situation that our principles point towards while knowing that just stating our principles is not going to do the trick yeah i think um I think that this is perhaps one of the most refreshing things about um, your thought, which is um that it begins that political action, if we take all of what you say here to be true, that political action should begin with a consideration of what is rather than what like obviously politics is partly like what ought to be. I think that this is what should happen, but the the first step to political action becomes a consideration of what is and an evaluation of that, and so it becomes far more conjunctural far more um, based on the concrete situation and scenario at hand, that this is where we should begin the evaluation of what to do, you know, like rather than just try to um, copy different things or, um, which as you said, it's fine. Like obviously we need inspiration and sometimes it's, it's helpful. It's always helpful to experiment. Um, but and often you can only know that things don't work by trying them out. 100%. Um, as, as a comrade of mine in, um, uh, currently in the UK said, uh, you know, I just wish we could fail faster. <laughs> like, it's good to, as long as we're learning, then keep on trying this out. But um, That's great. Instead of try again, fail better, try again, fail faster. Yeah. <laughs> fail, fail better, but fail faster. You know, like if we could... Bring those together, that would be really good. But um, what I want to get to is to um, that at the same time, you also like we cannot hope on any specific form, and we also cannot hope on any specific social group by virtue of its relation to like you know concrete power structures to automatically have the answers. And I would like us to, to, to consider this idea of yours of uh, beginning with the issues, like a kind of transversal issue, and from there how to build a politics around that. Mm -hmm. If you could elaborate on that, that would be very helpful, I feel. Well, that's, that's probably one of the most speculative parts in, in the book. Like, that's where I allow myself to follow some of these ideas and, and see, try to see where they can take us. Um, on, on the one hand, one of the starting points uh, for this is uh, a critique of what I call in the book uh, transitivity, and I, I later call, uh, or a, a part of which is uh, what I call a transitive theory of consciousness, which is basically transitivity is the idea, which is an idea inherited largely from the Marxist tradition that 
there is a position within the social structure that's by necessity destined not only to develop a certain kind of political subjectivity, but also by because of its position in the structure, be the agent who's capable of uh, overturning the whole structure. Obviously, for Marxism, this position is the position of the proletariat. So the proletariat is determined by its structural position to become the subject of revolution and not only become the subject of revolution, but to actually enact revolution and and bring about the end of the capitalist uh, regime. So what's behind this, and I think, and even though you'd be hard-pressed, I think, today to to find anyone who would say, oh yeah, I believe in this, I believe this is 100% true, I think, I think very few people, if asked, would consciously uphold this idea. On the other hand, in, in the grammar that opposes spontaneity to organization, this idea is there all the time because it's exactly the idea that people either will eventually know what their real interests are or that people always already know and that's just under the surface and if you just create the right space or if objective conditions become sufficiently acute, sufficiently bad, people will suddenly connect to this truth that's just lying there right beneath the surface and they will discover where their real interests lie. So like, like I say in the book, I think this has on the one hand been one of the elements, um, one of the pillars of the idea of revolution that we've inherited from the 19th century that's come under the most um, uh, explicit criticism, while also being something that's still operative in in our thought uh, today through this kind of uh, conceptual grammar that I criticize. And one of the one of the most explicit critiques of this idea of what I call transitivity, they they called they called it essentialism, although essentialism is a broader concept than, than what I name uh, transitivity. But one of the most explicit critiques of this idea of transitivity was uh, Leclerc and Mouffe's post, so-called post-Marxist critique in the early 80s. And I think, I think they, they were correct in point they they really put their finger on uh on the pulse of things there they were really on to something in their critique of transitivity transitivity except they then went much too far with their critique because they went so far that they completely erased the idea that you could speak of people having objective interests at all like interests for them become purely subjective, so interest is whatever people recognize as being their interests. And I still think that it's um, 
necessary and inevitable as a, a compass uh, for politics, for us to hold on to this idea that, no, there are things that are objectively against people's interests. You know, the, the survival of uh, the carbon economy is objectively against people's interests because it means the death of most people uh, and animals and living beings alive today. But the problem remains that people don't necessarily recognize their objective interests all the time. So people can be fundamentally uh, wrong about their interests. People can fundamentally misrecognize their interests. And this is one of the biggest problems in, uh, in politics is uh, finding ways of Creating, creating the circumstances in which the conditions in which people can come to recognize what their objective interests are. And you could at this point object, well, objective interests according to whom, according to you, well, yes, I fully recognize that I could be wrong too. Um, if, if I am wrong in what my definition of uh, their objectives, objective interests is, then uh, is likely that whatever is built um, politically out of that will will fail. But at the at the same time, I, I I think it's important to hold on to this idea that one of the crucial things that politics must do is create the conditions for people to recognize uh, what is objectively in their interest. Now you don't, and this is absolutely um, clear. This is something. This is one point where I, I would agree with um, uh, with Leclerc and Move, and I think is one of the big contributions of their uh, thought. Even though uh, I think they immediately afterwards go wrong by going too far, but. Um, it's the idea that you you don't it's not articulating the conceptual relations that connect um, the way the world is today to people's interests to how people's interests would be better served in a different arrangement of the world that it is today that is the most helpful thing. Uh, in in creating the conditions for people to recognize their objective interests, what and this is absolutely uh, evident with climate change. I think explaining climate change to people is not really what mobilizes people to act around climate change. Often, what um, what leads people towards action. Well, for starters, you know, it's very, it's very hard to say what acting against climate change as such would be. You know, people act against what they see. They act against um, coal mines like uh, Ender Galende. They act against, you know, oil drilling or fracking in the places where they live. They uh, act against the pipeline that's going to go through their indigenous reservation and so on. So the point is to start from 
um, the issues that people already have, the issues that people already recognize, like those instances where people already recognize their interests. So I recognize my interest in having no fracking in the region where I live, or I recognize my interest in having no pipeline go through my reservation and build from that, um, build a politics from what people already recognize. In the book, I name a few of these issues that I think uh, have a lot of potential. Again, I mean, this is purely experimental. This is for people um, to try out and see and hopefully see that it works. But I name a few issues that I think could have this um, power of being flashpoints around which to organize politically, but to organize politically in such a way that uh, developing a campaign is already developing a structural critique and is developing an ever-expanding structural critique from those initial issues. Um, the three I, I propose or the three I, I discuss, and I, these are not ideas I came up with on my own, but I'm, I'm thinking of some uh, particular cases, some particular examples of the last 10 years, uh, debt, and I'm thinking um, particularly about uh, the debt collective in the US and the Plataforma de Afectados por la Hipoteca in Spain, the platform for people affected by mortgages, housing, and I'm thinking of the, the work you guys are involved in in Berlin and I'm thinking of uh, the uh, Plataforma and I think, you know, housing has clearly become a bigger and bigger issue in the last few years all over the place. Um, and I mentioned transport because of the Pasilivri movement in Brazil, which uh, lit the fuse for the 2013 protests. But, you know, the issue of transport is actually, I mean, this is a very, uh, this is a very widely felt issue in Brazil, but it's, it's not about transport per se, it's about uh, public services, it's about access to pl- public utilities, it's about the right to the city, etc., etc. So it addresses people as, you know, in, in, in one case, you're addressing people. So you're addressing identities which aren't, you know, an abstract working class or an abstract proletarian, but are people who are affected by debt, the indebted, uh, people who are affected by the housing problem, so renters, homeless people, um, people who are affected by um, the people who are users of uh, public services. And you're constructing a politics around the issues that people uh, recognize there. It's a politics that speaks, potentially speaks to uh, different classes or different uh, class fractions. And they are sensitive enough sites in the contemporary arrangement of capitalism that I think they offer the possibility of building a 
politics that has this potential to both attack a point in the system that's quite sensitive, but also progressively expand from there to the other points uh, that this issue uh, is structurally connected to. Absolutely. And I thought that was a very interesting way of moving to this, what we had earlier, the way of thinking analytically about a problem a bit more from the outside of your direct effectiveness effectiveness your your transport ticket because it's too expensive you can't pay your rent uh, you can't pay your debt but where does that come from is that you being lazy maybe but maybe not <laughs> and then you can like kind of uh, talk like make people understand from their point of view how other yeah. issues are connected and with that also climate like when you think about for example transport how the the financialization of public services contributes to people being forced to drive their old diesel pickup from A to B instead of having a functioning, affordable public transportation network. Yeah, I feel that this, just to butt in real quick, I feel that this begins again with the, with the problem, right? Which is um, like a very kind of Paulo Freire, like political process of start with people's actually lived problems Exactly. Uh, begin a pol political process from there. And likewise, this is also the problem of organization is begin with the actual kind of problem of organization that you have, not with some kind of abstract ideal, but with how to best organize in order to keep these people together, expand people and achieve the, uh, the political effect that you need. And this and this um, completely disarms the the question that horrible, fearful bogeyman that people have of the of organizing as being synonymous with bringing uh, conscience consciousness from the outside, because um, it's not what it is at all. Um, it is about, you know, obviously you, you do anyone who starts be, you know, whether they, they are, um, part of a community or they are, um, uh, what they used to call in, um, in liberation theology, an external agent that comes into, uh, the, the community. Obviously you start, a political project, you start an organizing project, i.e. you start getting people together to address an issue because you have a certain analysis around that issue. But the work is not ramming your analysis down people's throats. The work is the campaign itself is the process of people working out an analysis for themselves is the process that the, 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 how you choose your targets, uh, how you choose, you know, what, uh, what your campaign priorities are, etc., is precisely the, the process of progressively developing a structural analysis. And you do this collectively, you do this, Or, you know, if you don't do the, this collectively, if you just um, tell people, now we do this, now you do that, then you're doing it wrong. And you're wasting a great opportunity of creating people, cre creating a new um, cadre 
of people who have that transferable analytical skill who can then go on for the rest of their lives uh, starting new campaigns and doing that same kind of work. I have all my questions answered. Yeah, I think I know oh, how wow. to do um, the, the, the revolutionaire realpolitik jetzt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I don't well, Which know. question was that? <laughs> no, I mean, this is the book. Anyways, um, Rodrigo, thank you for coming on with us. Very much appreciated. Thank you very much for the invitation. Rodrigo's book, Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, A Theory of Political Organization, is available at Verso Books. Thank you for tuning in to Spadework Podcast, an educational project by Werkstatt für Bewegungsbildung, a movement school dedicated to providing ordinary people with the tools capable of building resilient, rewarding, and effective political organizations. Please find a link to the Werkstatt in the description. This project is made possible by so many labors. We'd like to thank Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and Roar Magazine for their comradely support. <laughs>